You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 107. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast, and clicking the support button. Everything that you do to support this show goes right back into the production of this show. The books, the resources, hardware and software upgrades, all of it's used in service to this podcast. And for those of you who do support the podcast, those who DM me, those who make the memes, I appreciate all of it. It's fantastic to know there's people out there benefiting from the podcast. And I am grateful for all of you for reaching out to me, for supporting the show, and for all you do to help me get this out there for people every week. So that being said, I want to go back to Bushido, the virtues of the samurai, the eight virtues of the samurai in particular. And I found a brief summary by a man named Tim Clark, which outlines the history of the samurai, Bushido, and the eight virtues of the samurai, which I will include a link to in the show notes. And if you are interested in the topic of Bushido, I did cover this in the episodes on Inazo Notobe's famous book, Bushido, which I highly recommend to everybody. If you enjoy the topic, if you're curious, go buy the book. It's on Amazon. It's not very expensive. It's a small book, easy to read, but there's a lot, a lot to digest in Notobe's book. So this is entitled then The Bushido Code, The Eight Virtues of the Samurai by Tim Clark. First, a brief history of the samurai. The word samurai originally meant one who serves and referred to men of noble birth assigned to guard members of the imperial court. This service ethic spawned the roots of samurai nobility, both social and spiritual. Over time, the nobility had trouble maintaining centralized control of the nation and began outsourcing military, administrative, and tax-collecting duties to former rivals who acted like regional governors. As the imperial court grew weaker, local governors grew more powerful. Eventually, some evolved into daimyo, or feudal lords, who ruled specific territories independently of the central government. In 1185, Minamoto no Yoritomo, a warlord of the eastern provinces who traced his lineage back to the imperial family, established the nation's first military government and Japan entered its feudal period, which, for reference, lasted from 1185 to 1867. The country was essentially under military rule for nearly 700 years. However, the initial stability Minimoto achieved failed to bring lasting peace. Other regimes came and went, and in 1467, the national military government collapsed, plunging Japan into turmoil. Thus began the infamous Age of Wars, a bloody century of strife when local warlords fought to protect their domains and schemed to conquer rivals. By the time Japan plunged into the turbulent age of wars, the term samurai had come to signify armed government officials, peacekeeping officers, and professional soldiers. In short, almost anyone who carried a sword 
and was ready and able to exercise deadly force. The worst of these medieval Japanese warriors were little better than street thugs. The best were fiercely loyal to their masters and true to the unwritten code of chivalrous behavior known today as Bushido, usually translated as precepts of knighthood or way of the warrior, virtuous or villainous, the samurai emerged as the colorful central figures of Japanese history, a romantic archetype akin to Europe's medieval knights or the American cowboy of the Wild West. But the samurai changed dramatically after Hideyoshi pacified Japan. With civil society at peace, their role as professional fighters disappeared, and they became less preoccupied with martial training and more concerned with spiritual development, teaching, and the arts. By 1867, when the public wearing of swords was outlawed and the warrior class was abolished, they had evolved into what Hideyoshi had envisioned nearly three centuries earlier, swordless samurai. So, what was the Bushido Code? And also notice what happened in 1867. They declared that the carrying of a weapon in public was outlawed. You couldn't wear a sword in public anymore. The warrior class was officially abolished by the government. 1867. Within a generation, the samurai became disenfranchised, marginalized, taken advantage of, essentially eradicated from Japanese culture, except as a historical cartoon, which led then to the renovation project engaged in by the emperor to take Bushido and weaponize it against the youth of Japan in order to promote radical nationalism and emperor worship, which led to the Japanese participation in the war, especially in World War II. And so what I find interesting, I guess, historically, as someone who's trained as a historian, is how something that was the embodiment for them of virtue, of what is good and right and salutary, and within a generation of eradicating the samurai class, it was weaponized and used for evil purposes. Which to me then, the lesson there is, Anything meant for good can be used for evil, given the opportunity that evil men will use what is good for evil purposes. And therefore, we can't just take things at face value and assume that because something was good in the past, it's good now. And inversely, something that was wrong or bad or evil in the past is likewise the same now. Instead, I think, one, we have to be historians. We have to attend to the past. We have to learn from the past prove the cliche wrong that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it because, well, apparently we never learn, but actually learn from history and apply that to our lives as individuals and not attempt to apply that to a group or enforce it upon a group against their will. As a pastor, for example, I always preach for conversion. Every Sunday, when I get into the pulpit and I preach my sermon that I prepared throughout the week, I preach for the conversion of the unbeliever. It doesn't matter if there is one visitor in church or if everyone in church has been coming to church for their entire life. It doesn't matter. If we take seriously what the Bible says about what sin is and who we are as sinners, we don't believe 
and take God at his words. We don't believe the promises that are written down in Scripture. We don't believe the preaching of the pastor, because seeing for us is believing. And therefore, faith is impossible for us to maintain. So if God does not interfere, if he does not invade our space with his words, instill faith in us through those words, lead, guide, and direct our path through life, then every Sunday when we show up at church, we come in ready to revolt against that promise. So therefore, I preach for conversion, regardless of whether there are new people that I don't know there or not. Because everybody in church on Sunday is an unrepentant sinner, and therefore everyone in church on Sunday needs to be repented by God's word. That being said then, when we study the past and we apply it to the present tense, we can't assume automatically that the people we're talking to are going to buy what we're selling. And forcing them to accept it is only going to harden them to the message, and then what was initially something that was good and beneficial and useful that helped people now is seen as being something malicious and malignant and destructive. Not that the virtues of the samurai or Bushido is inherently destructive, but the people that are using it are making it destructive. It's the person handling the gun that's the problem, not the gun. Banning guns is not going to stop gun violence. And preventing law-abiding citizens and responsible adults from owning a gun is not going to curtail gun violence and crime. Actually, we know for a fact, scientifically from the data, the opposite occurs. When you make it more difficult for responsible adults and law-abiding citizens to defend themselves, crime goes up, gun violence goes up. In the same way, what happened in Japan after 1867, when it was made illegal to carry a sword in public and therefore basically illegal to be a warrior in Japan, the emperor created a warrior class that were loyal only to him. And within a couple generations, you have World War II and you have the Bushido Code applied to kamikaze pilots and to Japanese soldiers like the Rape of Nanking some of the greatest evil wrought in the 20th century by humans. So it's important to learn from these things. It's important to learn from history, I believe. And there's so much to be gained that is beneficial and helpful for us in the present tense. But we still must have our filters tuned up and we must look at it with a critical eye. And the more at home we are with someone from the past, the more comfortable we are and agree with someone from the past, the more diligent I believe we have to be in applying those filters and being critical. Because if our spiritual fathers, if those that we seek to emulate in the present tense, those who influence us in a positive way, are put to the test, well then their truth should become even more prominent and shine even brighter and yield even greater fruit for us in the present tense. Because if it's true and if it's good and if it's right, it remains true and good and right regardless of the scrutiny that we apply to it in the present tense. And I think that's the importance of history is that it's been field tested for decades, for generations, for thousands of years. So maybe there's something there that we can learn from, that we can benefit from, or not. But if we don't put it to the test, if we don't test the spirits, we'll never know. So that's why I wanted to come back to the Bushido Code today, to revisit it two years after I read Inazo Natobe's book on the show, probably. I guess, maybe two years now, 
just to see how I've changed. And if you have been with me since those Natobi episodes, you can listen to this and think about how you've changed over the last two years since we last looked at the Bushido Code specifically. So, Bushido Code then. Just a few decades after Japan's warrior class was abolished, U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt raved about a newly released book entitled Bushido, The Soul of Japan. He bought five dozen copies for family and friends. In the slim volume, which went on to become an international bestseller, author Natobe Inazo interprets the samurai code of behavior, how chivalrous men should act in their personal and professional lives. Speaking of spiritual fathers, if Teddy Roosevelt said it, I'm more than likely going to agree with it because I love that man and I love what he had to say. However, he also did and said some dumb stuff. He did some uh, stuff that wouldn't fly in today's society, good, bad, or otherwise, that even I look at and go, mm, okay, Teddy, you're a, you know, again, you're a victim of your time. I understand why you said or did that, but I, I, disagree, I disagree with that, <laughs> which again, we're free to do. And since he's dead, he can't argue with me. So bonus. But I love Teddy and I love that he practiced jujitsu and boxing. I love that he was down with what Natobi was selling. It just raises his value in my estimation. And I honor and respect everything that he did. However, there's some things that he didn't send that you have to look at and go, mm, no, I disagree with that, bud. And if you truly love someone, whether they're alive or dead, I believe true love is being able to say to that person, you're, I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. And I'm happy to talk about it and debate it with you because I love you enough to be proven wrong in my own opinion. And I love you enough to have an argument with you in this, this environment where we're both safe and there's no threat that the other person's going to be like, I never want to talk to you again and you're never my friend. No, I love you and I trust you enough to have a serious conversation about something that we disagree on even if it's significant. And I'm willing, I love you enough that I'm willing to let you not only disagree with me, but be angry at me for a while for even bringing up the discussion. Because I want what's best for you. And if that means having a debate, having an argument, and it improves our relationship, it improves our discourse, whatever it might be, I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to suffer the slings and arrows of this argument for you to be improved and to grow and become better. So, though some scholars have criticized Natobe's work as romanticized yearning for a non-existent age of chivalry, there's no question that his work builds an extraordinary thousand-year-old precepts of manhood that originated in chivalrous behavior on the part of some, though certainly not all, samurai. Well, there you go. What today's readers may find most enlightening about Bushido is the emphasis on compassion, benevolence, and the other non-martial qualities of true manliness. Here are Bushido's eight virtues as explicated by Natobe. Something that I talked with a, a teammate of mine last night, shout out to Pat, is comfort. What is comfort? It's a slow death. And that something that's a cliche in jiu-jitsu, for example, is that you get comfortable being uncomfortable. And once you become comfortable being uncomfortable, you recognize that comfort for most people in our society is apathy. And apathy is entropy. It leads to entropy. That most people are just existing. They're just being pulled along by the cultural current. And that they're not thoughtful very often. They're usually anesthetized with drugs and alcohol, prescription medications and alcohol in particular. 
that they don't really have goals or dreams or hopes, that for them the past is full of regret, the future is full of dread, because it will be more of the same misery that I am experiencing today in the present tense. And therefore, they're not ever alive, but they're not dead. They're simply existing. They're simply being carried along by the current of society. And that that is no way to exist. That is not why God put us on this earth. That's not why he created us. And so talking with Pat about this last night, he's 100% correct. Custom, comfort is a slow death. And that even once you get comfortable being uncomfortable, that can become a false friend. As I described, as a higher belt, you can get lazy and start only rolling with lower belts. And it, it starts innocent enough. I'm not feeling very well tonight. I got this injury I'm nursing. So I'm going to roll some lower belts and kind of take it easy tonight. Cool. You want to do that because you're injured, you're not feeling it? Not a problem. No problem with that attitude. That's good. It's a marathon, not a race. And I want you here for a long time. Let's not, you know, burn you out or hurt you even worse. However, if after two months, I see you always rolling with blue belts and white belts, you've gotten comfortable being comfortable. You got to go back up and you got to start rolling with only higher belts that are going to smash you and, and remind you that the whole reason we do this is to be put in uncomfortable situations. You got so comfortable being in certain uncomfortable situations that you use that as a cover, as a blind to deceive yourself. And you stopped growing. You stopped advancing. You stopped bettering yourself. You got comfortable subbing the lower belts. And that's no way to do jujitsu. If you're not getting submitted more than you are being, you know, submitting other people, you're probably not rolling with the right people, in my opinion. So likewise, compassion, benevolence, and the non-martial qualities. One of those is don't get comfortable because comfort is a slow death. Engage in struggle. Challenge yourself. Carry heavy weights. Recognize that the obstacle is the way. All of those things. And recognize that the reason that we choose struggle, the reason we choose to make ourselves uncomfortable, the reason that we choose challenge over an easy life is because out of that comes compassion and benevolence and all of these non-martial qualities, which lead to true manliness and true femininity, in my opinion. Not just making a man a man, but I think these qualities make a woman a woman. And so we're talking again about pre-modern, pre-enlightened industrial revolution way of seeing the world. And the Tobe, if he's knocked for a non-existent age of chivalry that he's romanticizing and yearning for, it's because Natobe had the bad fortune of writing about this stuff post-enlightenment, post-industrial revolution. So of course, moderns in the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century in this case, are going to vilify and dismiss Natobe's work because it doesn't fit in with their idealized worldview. And of course, they're not interested in things like compassion, benevolence, and non-martial qualities. What are they interested in? The latest technology, the latest scientific wonder. They're all optimistic about the future. And then they walked blindly into World War I. So we know how that worked out. And maybe if they had taken Natobe seriously, maybe if they had laughed off Teddy Roosevelt's attempts to get them to read the book, it wouldn't have happened that way. Or World War II, for that matter. So, the eight virtues as explicated. Man, that's a hard word to say. Explicated. You can't even say it. I can't. Explicated. There it is. Here are the Bushido's eight virtues as explained by Natobe. 
there we go, in a non-academic sense, explained. Rectitude or justice, number one. Rectitude or justice. Bushido refers not only to martial rectitude, but to personal rectitude, meaning not only do you seek what is right in your training as a fighter, but you seek what is right and just in your personal life, non-martial stuff. So then to quote Natobe, rectitude or justice is the strongest virtue of Bushido. A well-known samurai defines it this way. Rectitude is one's power to decide upon a course of conduct in accordance with reason. Without wavering, to die when to die is right, to strike when to strike is right. Another speaks of it in the following terms. That is another samurai. Rectitude is the bone that gives firmness and stature. Without bones, the head cannot rest on top of the spine, nor hands move, nor feet stand. So, without rectitude, neither talent nor learning can make the human frame into a samurai. So justice, knowing right and wrong, good and evil, and being able to distinguish between the two is the strongest virtue of Bushido, both in fighting and in life. So justice, having a strong sense of right and wrong, good and evil, is one's power to decide upon a course of conduct in accordance with reason, without wavering, knowing when it's right to die, when it is right to strike, when it is good to go forward, and when it is not. Right and wrong, good and evil. This is the bone that supports everything else in life. It supports the head and the hands and the feet. Everything is about the bones. And so, without justice, without knowing good and evil, right and wrong. No learning is going to make you into a samurai. No learning is going to make you righteous or virtuous or good. Number two, courage. Courage is worthy of being counted among the virtues only if it is exercised in the cause of righteousness and rectitude. Well, there we go. Two serves one. In his Analects, Confucius says, perceiving what is right and doing it not reveals a lack of courage. Oh, there we go. I see. Perceiving what is right and doing it not reveals a lack of courage. In short, courage is doing what is right. So, now we're distinguishing between bravery and courage. Bravery, that's rectitude basically, right? Bravery is being able to stand up and do what is right and not do what is wrong at the right time, in the right place, with the right person. Courage, well, courage is counted amongst the virtues only if it is exercised in the cause of what is right, what is just. So that's why Confucius says, perceiving what is right and not doing it reveals that you're not courageous, you're cowardly. Courage is doing what is right. Cowardice is knowing what's right, but then not doing it. So if you've ever wondered, am I courageous or am I a coward? Well, do you know what is right? And do you do it? That's a bitter pill for all of us to swallow, I think. Because I don't know anybody in, in my personal circle of friends, my teammates or my colleagues, I don't know anyone 
who from time to time or all the time doesn't fall into this trap, give into this temptation to just shut up and go along. You know what? I've had a long day. I'm not in the mood for this. I just, I don't want to stir up shit. So I'm just going to just shut my mouth and just say nothing. Is that courageous? No, it's cowardice. But understandable, right? You're having a day. You're not in the mood. If you open your mouth, you're just going to explode all over these people. Maybe you start swinging and kicking. Who knows? But you hold back. That's prudent for sure. And it's probably wise. It's just not courageous. And I think it's important, again, as I said in the beginning, to exercise a level of critical thinking and critical thought when we read these things and not just reduce them to some binary, do this and you're virtuous, don't do this and you're not. The point of knowing what is right and not doing it is also returning to the virtues and asking, what can I do to prepare myself for the next time this occurs so that I don't act in a cowardly way? So I don't believe that these virtues should be read in such a way that you fall into one or other ditch of, I'm doing it or I'm not doing it. I'm living a virtuous life or I'm not. Because none of us live a purely virtuous life because all of us are human. We are not perfect. We never will be. And in fact, I am radically opposed to platonic idealism in any aspect of a person's life. I think it's destructive and detrimental to a psyche, to a relationship, to society. We see this today. The Constitution doesn't really worry itself with matters of safety. What it's concerned about is natural law and the rights that are afforded to us by our Creator within the scope of natural law. Today, all anybody seems to care about is feeling safe. Not being safe. There's a difference. Feeling safe. The governor of my state at March of 2020, I kept the quote, when questioned and challenged about the efficacy of paper masks in preventing the spread of COVID, he was told, the company that manufactures the paper masks even prints on the box that these masks do not prevent COVID. What do you have to say to that then since you're enforcing masks? And my governor said, all that matters is that people feel safe. That's all that matters, end quote. He said it out loud. He said the secret part out loud. All that matters is that people feel safe. That's all that matters. Can you imagine a governor or the president or someone in Congress or the Senate saying that at the height of the Black Plague <laughs> when people were literally piled up in the streets? Just bodies, dead bodies piled up in the streets because there just wasn't enough people to carry them away and bury them properly? Imagine someone saying, well, it doesn't really matter if they live or die. All that matters is that they feel good. They feel safe. Do you think people during the Black Plague would have accepted that excuse? I actually have an account. I don't know if I've read it on the show. I should read it on high ground. About after a plague went through a city, the doctors were hauled before the court and all but one of them was executed for malpractice because it turned out that they were profiting off of the plague and that they were prescribing medications and treatments that they knew didn't work, weren't effective. And so they were hung. Those were the good old days when there were consequences for murdering people, willfully participating in the death of people to make a profit. But do they know the difference between right and wrong? Yes, because those doctors have been in court. They were profiteering off of the plague, and they knew they were, and they knew people were dying as a consequence, and they did nothing. That's not just a lack of courage, 
that's a lack of virtue altogether. That's just plain evil, in my opinion. And so they received their just reward. They were hung until they were dead. They joined those that they betrayed, their own neighbors. So courage is bigger than just a paragraph printed on a page that you can easily digest and then put into action. Every single day, maybe moment to moment, as with addiction, especially when you're newly recovered and sober, <clears throat> moment to moment, you got to make that choice to be courageous, to stand for what's right. <clears throat> Excuse me. To not pick up the bottle, to not go back to the pipe, to not inject yourself again. That's why you relapse, because you lack courage. You return to what is predictable and safe in a strange way, chasing that impossible thing that you can never get back to. But the pain of that knowledge is worse than the pain of the addiction and what you do and how you compromise and sacrifice yourself in the midst of that addiction. And so, yeah, you do need to know the difference between right and wrong, but then you need the courage to act upon that. And how do you develop that? By failing, in my opinion. By failing to be courageous, you learn how to be courageous because it forces you to take a step back and say, okay, what did, what did I do there? Why did I do that? Where did that come from? And how can I not make that same choice again next time this is put in front of my face? So if you're listening to this and you're saying to yourself, I'm not a very courageous person based on that definition, it's okay. Read it again. Courage is worthy of being counted among virtues only if it is exercised in the cause of righteousness, in what is right and in rectitude. In his Analects, Confucius says, perceiving what is right and doing it not reveals a lack of courage. In short, courage is doing what's right. Fine. You didn't do it last time. Do it this time. Is it uncomfortable? Yes, especially when you first start to do it. If you're not used to it, it's like a muscle that you've never used. Just do it. But slowly, slowly, it gets easier and easier to speak in favor of what is good and right and salutary. And it becomes more and more difficult to participate in lies. It's just, in my experience anyways, it's just like, it's just like a muscle. You, you got to exercise it. Otherwise, you can't count on it when you need it. So don't beat yourself up if you lack rectitude or courage. Simply recognize, I need to add this to my daily exercise. This is a part of my daily routine. In the benign conversations of my day, do what's right. Say what's right. Say it in kindness, but be honest and be truthful and say what's right. And when it comes to doing what's right, do it. Again, do it in the service of others. Do it for the good of others, but force yourself through the uncomfortable moments, trusting that eventually it's going to get better, it's going to get easier, and you're going to be better for it. Because as I said, comfort is a slow death. And it's easier to shut up and do nothing and say nothing and go along with the herd than it is to step out of line and speak up and say, I think we're going the wrong direction. I think we're walking off a cliff. But if you don't stand up and start, other people won't speak up either. And I think you'll find that the more you speak up and speak the truth and serve the truth for the sake of the neighbor, the more neighbors are also going to start speaking up and speaking the truth too. It just takes that one spark. It takes one person to open the door, whatever, however you want to phrase it. So number three, benevolence or mercy. A man invested with the power to command and the power to kill, was expected to demonstrate equally extraordinary powers of benevolence and mercy. From the word bene, meaning good, 
So we need you to demonstrate in equal parts goodness and kindness. That's what mercy means, kindness, forgiveness, let's say. So love, magnanimity, affection for others, sympathy and pity are traits of benevolence, the highest attribute of the human soul. Both Confucius and Mencius often said the highest requirement of a ruler of men is benevolence. Yeah, because it's pretty much the most difficult thing to maintain when you want people to do what you believe is right and good and salutary, and not only will they not do it, they seem to choose the opposite. They seem to want vice and sin and what is bad for them. Again, just look around at society today. A man invested with the power to command and the power to kill, most importantly, was expected to demonstrate equally extraordinary powers of benevolence, love, goodness, and mercy, kindness, forgiveness, sympathy for others. So think about how hard is it to love someone who is in full rebellion against you, who will not listen to your edicts, who will not take advice or counsel from you? How difficult is it to show affection to others who you deem unworthy of your affections? How, how difficult is it to sympathize with someone when you're angry at them, when you're disgusted by them, when you're morally upset and offended by their actions? How difficult is it to sympathize and want to stand in that person's shoes and try to see the world from their side of the street? It's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. In my experience, anyways, it's hard. This is the one I struggle with more than anything because I'm naturally a brutal person. I'm brutally honest. I'm brutally loving, but I'm brutal. I know this. Other people will tell you the exact same thing. If you need a word to describe Donovan, it's brutal. It's just who I am by nature. I don't lean into it. I don't try and nurture it. It's just who I am. And to love and to be magnanimous and to be affectionate toward others that I don't, that I don't like and show sympathy towards people I don't respect, which is most people, this is the one that I have to hold up in front of my face every day and remind myself, hey man, not only are you a servant of God, but you're a servant of other people. So show them some love because the world's not a very loving place. Show them some sympathy because there's not a lot of people running around today that want to sympathize with other people's plight. Show pity on people that are victims, true victims. Show them some pity. Walk with them. Carry them if necessary. Recognizing that, man, this person's a mess. They're existing. They're not really living a life. They're all tied up and chained up, and they don't even realize they're slaves to their habits, to their addictions, to other people. So show them some love. Cut them some slack, essentially. Be benevolent. Be merciful. Give them life. If you have the power to kill them, that means you also have the power to give them life or at least create opportunity for them to actually live. So why not do it? And I think that's the key thing. If you have the power to kill, you have the power to give life. You do. Just like a surgeon, just like a first responder, you're in those situations with people where they're literally pushed to the precipice of death or are dying or have died. And you are standing over the top of them doing chest compressions waiting for the defib to get there so you can shock them alive or give them an injection of adrenaline. If you have that kind of power, if God has given you that kind of responsibility over others, maybe recognize 
that that also means that he's given you the power to love greatly, to sympathize with people, and that's why you do what you do, right? That's why you do what you do, because you love deeply, and you hate to see people suffer, you hate to see people hurt, you hate to see someone die. I don't think there's anybody that goes to medical school initially to kill people. I don't think there's anyone who goes into EMT work or firemen or police work or anything with the attitude of, I'm going to use this to exploit and hurt other people to my own benefit. We go into these things because we love deeply and we feel deeply. And when we see people hurting, especially children, for example, or just those who are weak and vulnerable and unable to help themselves, when you feel deeply about people like that, you don't stand by. You're not a bystander. You don't just watch other people or expect other people to take care of the problem. You run into the burning building, whereas other people are trying to run away from it. You run toward the crisis where other people are running away from the crisis. You run toward the sound of gunfire rather than away from it. That's who you are. And by the way, that's also rectitude and courage, doing that. But the reason that you do that, the reason that rectitude and courage can even exist in your life is because you love deeply. That's benevolence. That's mercy. You are a merciful person. So lean into that because in my opinion, we need so much more mercy in this world. So much more. And we need to apply it to each other liberally and in in abundance every day. We have got to cut each other more slack. We've got to be more forgiving. We've got to sympathize and stand in another person's shoes and see the world from their side of things. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to accept their worldview or their hermeneutic. It simply means that you stand in their shoes so you can try to understand to the best of your ability why they are doing what they're doing. That's benevolence. And if, if at the bottom of all that you still have to kill them, at least you do it knowing that there was no other option. You did everything you could to bring about a different conclusion to this scenario. But it was kinetic. It was too kinetic and they were too bent on hurting you or hurting others and there was nothing you could do about it. There's no such thing as the lesser of two evils. Evil is evil and good is good. And that means that sometimes you have to kill in the name of what is good and right and even salutary. But there's other times when you have to recognize this is not a time to kill. This is a time to promote and propagate life. So how can I help facilitate that happening? Which then brings us to politeness, number four. Discerning the difference between obsequiousness and politeness can be difficult for casual visitors to Japan. But for a true man, courtesy is rooted in benevolence. And again, for those of you listening, I know like 98% of my audience is male. But to the women that listen to the podcast, one, you're awesome. I love you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. But also two, remember this was written at the turn of the last century. So, and samurai were men. Women didn't fight in the military in Japan. And, and so everything's towards the masculine. But I think this applies equally to everybody nowadays. I don't think we have to bifurcate that one. Obsequiousness versus politeness. So, Natobe writes, courtesy and good manners have been noticed by every foreign tourist as distinctive Japanese traits. But politeness 
should be the expression of a benevolent regard for the feelings of others. It's a poor virtue if it is motivated only by a fear of offending good taste. In its highest form, politeness approaches love. For example, this morning I had to go into my credit union. Why? Because they sent my new debit card out over a month ago. And the mail, well, the post office, they don't know where it's at. It's not the credit union's fault that it was quote-unquote lost in the mail. And yet I had to go in, I had to get a temporary card until my new card comes. And as is the case in the upper Midwest, everybody at the credit union was apologetic to the point of annoyance for something that they had no responsibility for, that they did not participate in. And in fact, it didn't involve the credit union at all. It was all in the U.S. Postal Service. But it's a very upper Midwestern virtue to apologize for others. When at root, it's a very passive-aggressive way of deflecting anger and blame and guilt from yourself onto, well, me, if I complain too much, because then I'm the jerk. We apologized. What more do you want from us? But rather than just simply say, we sent it out, it's the post office screwed up. How can we help fix the situation and get your debit card back to you as quickly as possible? Because what happened is all of my subscriptions, everything that I use my debit card for, all of them expired. And then I started getting emails that my debit card had expired. And then I call the bank and the bank's like, you should have gotten it like three and a half weeks ago. I'm like, well, I wouldn't be calling you if I had it. And then it took another week to track down the culprit. And then we figured out it was the U.S. Postal Service. I went in this morning to get my temporary card. Now, I say this because as I noted previously, I struggle with benevolence because I don't really respect most people because I don't think they're worthy of my respect because they don't respect themselves. And people in general annoy me for all eight of these virtues, <laughs> for reasons that are described in all eight of these virtues. Is that arrogance? Probably. <laughs> it's hubris? Yeah, sure. Is it just a lifetime of being disappointed and having my heart broken by people's rock bottom standards for living their life? Absolutely. And at a certain point, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't pretend that I wasn't seeing it and that it didn't annoy me and that I didn't want to slap them awake. But again, that's my sin. I struggle with benevolence and mercy. So being polite, which I call showing respect, is something that I have to announce to my wife as we walked into the credit union. Just be respectful. Just be polite. And my wife looked at me and goes, exactly, because she knows better. And so I was polite, and I was respectful, and I spoke with respect, and I treated them with respect. Because one, they didn't screw up. Two, I don't care that they're apologizing for some non-existent abstract entity that I can't walk into their business and say, hey, well, actually, I can walk into the post office. Let me correct myself. I walked into the post office, and I said, where's my debit card? And they said, we have no idea. There we go. There's bureaucracy in a nutshell. We don't know. No one's responsible and there's nothing that you can do about it because there's nothing that we're going to do about it and that's just the way it is. <laughs> that's the U.S. Postal Service around here. That's my experience with them anyways. And so what am I supposed to do? Yell and scream? What is that going to help? How will that benefit me or the people that I'm ranting at? Can I curse them and slam the door and demand to talk to the manager? Sure. Is it going to be beneficial for anybody? No. It's not. And it's very short-sighted and immature 
because at some point in the future, I'm going to have to interact with them again. And they're going to remember the last time I came in and how I behaved. And it, it costs me nothing to be courteous, to be polite to people that I don't respect. And so long as you don't prove yourself disrespectable to me by your behavior, I will treat you with respect and politeness to the point that I am tapping my foot on the floor in order to control my tongue. Because it's more important that I show you respect and politeness than for me to tell you what I'm actually thinking right now. It costs me nothing. But if I let it out, it's going to cost us a lot, like this working relationship we have. And since it's my credit union, and I've been with them for a while, there's no reason to burn bridges. Some of their members attend my church. Some of their children, who are adults, attend my church. So not only am I hurting my professional relationship with the credit union, but I'm hurting my personal relationship as a pastor with people as well. There's ripple effects to being impolite and disrespectful to people. And we need to remember that in those moments when we think this is just me and her. And what I say or what I do right now and what she says and does to me, it's just going to stay here. No, it's not. You don't think that both of you aren't going to go and talk about this with other people or talk about it on a podcast that hundreds of people are going to listen to or thousands or millions. So be polite. Be courteous. It costs you nothing. And recognize, like Dalton says in Roadhouse, be nice until it's time to not be nice. Which now goes on to honesty and sincerity, number five. True samurai, according to author Natobe, disdained money, believing that men must grudge money for riches hinder wisdom. Let me repeat that. Men must grudge money because riches hinder wisdom. Mm, that's a winner. Thus children of high-ranking samurai were raised to believe that talking about money showed poor taste and that ignorance of the value of different coins showed good breeding. I like it. I like it a lot. That's because that's the way I live, actually. That's our philosophy in, in how we teach our kids about money. So there we go. <clears throat> Not the part where they don't know the difference between a quarter and a dime, though. <laughs> we do want them to know a few things about the world. But it's an important point. Riches hinder wisdom. Why? Because you're always thinking about money. You're always thinking about what you need to buy, what you owe, the loans you have to repay. Again, it becomes this web of control and debt and paying off debts and collecting debts. So Bushido encouraged thrift, not for economical reasons so much as for the exercise of abstinence. Luxury was thought the greatest menace to manhood and severe simplicity was required of the warrior class. The counting machine and a Bacchus were abhorred. This reads like a Ron Swanson screed, <laughs> if you've ever watched Community. And if you haven't, just go on YouTube and look up the best of Ron Swanson. He's also a personal hero of mine, for as far as fictional characters go. <laughs> I'm going to turn you from boys into men, from men into gladiators, and from gladiators into Swansons. But severe simplicity was required of the warrior class because the greatest menace to manhood was luxury, was comfort. Comfort is slow death. Comfort leads to apathy, and apathy leads to entropy. Do not allow yourself luxuries. Do not allow yourself to be lulled into a false sense of comfort. 
because that is slow death. Which then brings us to number six, honor. Though Bushido deals with the profession of soldiering, it is equally concerned with non-martial behavior. Natobe writes, the sense of honor, a vivid consciousness of personal dignity and worth, characterized the samurai. He was born and bred to value the duties and privileges of his profession. Fear of disgrace hung like a sword over the head of every samurai. To take offense at slight provocation was ridiculed as short-tempered. As the popular adage put it, true patience means bearing the unbearable. Well, there you go. Being comfortable, or being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Bearing the unbearable. Pick up the heaviest load you can find and carry it until it becomes too light and then pick up a heavier load. Bear the unbearable. What? You can't pick up the load that you've chosen to carry? Okay, then you're right where you need to be. True patience means bearing what is unbearable, such as pain, whether it be mental, emotional, or physical pain. Those times when you want to curl up in a ball on the floor and just die. You literally pray that God would kill you right then and there because the pain is so unbearable. You would rather die than live without them. You would rather die than never get your next fix. You would rather die than bury your children. True patience means that you bear it. That's honor. Honor is self-respect. It's knowing your worth and your value as a person, as a creature. It's understanding the value of what you do and the duties that come with it, the privileges that also come with it, that your profession is a gift. It's a privilege to do what you do so long as it is a good and virtuous and just profession. You have nothing to be sorry about. You have nothing to feel bad about. If your profession is noble and honorable and good, then it's a privilege that you get to participate in that. So know the value of the responsibilities laid upon you in your profession and recognize if I'm doing this and I love doing it, this is what I was born and bred to do. There's no question. So stop questioning yourself. Fear of disgrace hung like a sword over the head of every samurai. Exactly. I would rather die than disgrace my children's name. I would rather die than bring myself into disgrace. I never want my children to look at me as being dishonorable, disrespectable, a failure as a father who is worthy of their provocation and ridicule. No. I take very seriously honor your father and mother. Which means then, I have had to learn through suffering, through affliction, through bearing the unbearable, which is the life of my children. I'm not God. I can't bear that. I cannot preserve or protect the life of my children any more than the Lord allows for. I don't have that kind of strength. That's like asking me to lift a mountain. I can't. I cannot bear the lives of my children. It's unbearable. I'm already racked with enough guilt about how I failed as a father. I don't need my children's lives hanging on my decisions, but they do. 
That's the duties of the office. That's the duties of my profession as father. That's no small thing. But I say that because I love them. And because I love them, I gladly accept that unbearable burden. It doesn't make it lighter. It just makes it better. And it makes the suffering better because it gives the suffering meaning and purpose. It gives it a name and a face. And it allows me to look up from the drudgery of my so-called profession, my vocation, and recognize I'm doing it for them. And that's all that matters. So I pray that you too, in your life, have something that you're that passionate about. That when you look at it, you say, that's why I'm doing this. I'm doing it for her or him or them or that. Because that's the thing when you can look at it and you can name it and put your hands on it or him or her. That you're like, this is why I'm doing this. There's no question then why I'm doing this. I'm doing it for them. And then you can move on with life and actually enjoy what you're doing and recognize this is a pleasure. This is a gift. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it hurts. Yes, you're afflicted by it and you're going to die because of it. But we all die. We're all afflicted. We all suffer and hurt. That's just the human predicament. That's the nature of being you and me and all of us. It's a part of the human experience that we all suffer, that we all suffer affliction, that we all go through hurt and harm and pain. We all die. But what are you going to die for? To me, that's all that matters. What are you going to die for? Who are you going to die for? As I've said, you either sacrifice for your children or you sacrifice your children. There's only two ways. You either sacrifice for what you love or you sacrifice what you love. So number seven, loyalty. Economic reality has dealt a blow to organizational loyalty around the world. Nonetheless, true men remain loyal to those to whom they are indebted. Loyalty to a superior was the most distinctive virtue of the feudal era. Personal fidelity exists among all sorts of men. A gang of pickpockets swears allegiance to its leader, like Fagin and Oliver Twist. But only in the code of chivalrous honor does loyalty assume paramount importance. Respect, honor, loyalty, fidelity, faithfulness. Why am I faithful to you? Because I respect you. Why am I unfaithful? Because I don't respect you. Why do husbands and wives cheat on each other? Why do they have infidelities? We used to call them affairs before postmodernity changed the meaning to essentially open the doorway for everybody to have affairs. Why do you fool around? Why do you step out on your husband or wife? Well, of course you're disloyal. You, you're doing something that's unfaithful. It's because you don't respect them. Why don't you respect them? Because you don't respect yourself. You don't respect yourself. So you married someone you don't respect. And then it compounds because now you're married and you're living belly to belly with each other every day, all day, 365. And that disrespect for yourself, that disrespect for your spouse, it starts to build and build and build until the pressure is so bad that you let it out. You just purge you blow out the vents and you jump into bed with somebody else. And then you come to me, for example, and say, I just don't know how this happened. Well, it started when you were dating. That's how long ago this started. It started when you were dating. 
How do I know that? Because it's the same story in every divorce that I've ever been a part of as a pastor. That when you were dating, you knew there was something off. You were something not right. But you, you, you just moved forward anyways. You chose not to address it because you were in love. But yeah, you didn't respect yourself, and therefore you hooked up with someone that you also didn't respect, that didn't respect him or herself. And then the two of you got married, disrespecting each other, and you just buried it. You just buried it for the sake of the kids. You buried it for the sake of the marriage. You buried it for the sake of the business, whatever it might be. Instead of just saying it out loud, I hate myself. I don't really know my own value. I don't have any dignity or I struggle with matters of dignity. I don't respect myself. I'm racked with resentment and guilt. And therefore, I don't really respect you either. And that's why our marriage is cracked wide open. But when you love someone and respect someone, then loyalty is the most important of virtues. There's nothing short of betraying my children that would hurt me personally more than being unfaithful to my wife because she is so faithful to me and has proven herself over and over so many times I can't count. It humbles me to consider how much more faithful my wife is to me than I am to her in every facet of our relationship. She's just a better person than I am. It's just a fact. And so for me to dishonor her in that way, to be disloyal to her in that way, it's just, to me, it would be walking death for myself if I betrayed her trust. It would be the ultimate act of, of dishonoring myself if I betrayed her trust. And I wouldn't kill myself, but I know for a fact, because I've gone into that dark place before by myself and with her in discussion. And when the conclusion I came to was, if I ever did that, well, I'd have to keep on living, but it would be a living death because there's nothing that I could do to another person that I consider more damaging, more hurtful, and just evil than betraying my wife's trust, other than, like I said, betraying my children's trust. For you, your mileage may vary, but there it is. That's what we're reading these for because, man, to me, this stimulates a lot of thought and a lot of words. Eight, character and self-control. Bushido teaches that men should have, behave according to an absolute moral standard. Absolute moral standard. One that transcends logic. So he's appealing to an objective reality, natural law argument. What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. The difference between good and bad and between right and wrong are givens, not arguments subject to discussion or justification. And a man should know the difference. The difference between good and bad and right and wrong are given. They're objective truths. They're reality. If you want to argue about it, we can argue about it. If you want to discuss it, we can discuss it. If you want to attempt to justify your choice of doing what's wrong to me, I will listen. However, just understand, I have determined what is right and wrong based on objective reality, on the objective reality of right and wrong, that they're a given, and that what we're really arguing about or discussing or whatever is how you're avoiding taking responsibility for what's right 
and why you didn't do it, which goes back to courage and bravery. It is a man's obligation to teach his children moral standards through the model of his own behavior. Well, I just discussed that. It is dishonorable. It's shameful if you as a father or a mother behave in such a way that you don't teach your children objective reality and therefore objective moral standards of right and wrong, good and bad. And teaching them, these are givens. These are not open to debate. We can debate how they're applied. We can debate how I've avoided living up to the standard or lived up to the standard. But as far as the standard itself, that's a given. That's the foundation on which we're standing. The whole dilemma of postmodernity has been that they took a jackhammer to the foundation. That's why I'm always ranting about the removal of metaphysics from our public conversations. Because we can't discuss objective right and wrong and good and evil because postmodernity jackhammered the foundation, which is objective right and wrong. So what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right now. That's why the mentally ill run our society. That's why we're ruled over by pedophiles, by narcissistic psychopaths, by criminals. They're everywhere because we have taken a sledgehammer to the foundation of society, the foundation of reality itself, which is right and wrong, good and evil. And rather than say it's a given, we say it's a matter of personal taste. What's true for you isn't true for me which reduces every interaction then about right and wrong to power games. Because who is right? The person who's got the power. Who's wrong? The person who's had power taken away from them. Does that make right right and wrong wrong? No, usually it's actually upside down and backwards. The power to enforce right and wrong is the power to enforce your own personal taste on other people, which based on objective moral reality is the definition of evil. It's what's wrong. It's not good. And yet we accept it because we're cowards. And we have no sense of justice because at the end we get to circle back around to number one. Eight. Eight's all about character and self-control based on objective reality of right and wrong. What's number one? Justice. What is justice based on? A knowledge of right and wrong. So these eight can be read in a circle get to the end, go right back to the beginning, and then reflect on what you read. The first objective of samurai education was to build up character. The subtler faculties of prudence, intelligence, and dialectics were less important. Intellectual superiority was esteemed, but a samurai was essentially a man of action. Yeah. Character. What's lacking in society today? Characters. It's just there's no characters anymore. Everyone's homogenized. Everyone's whole milk. Well, actually, everyone's skim milk at this point, which is just water lying about being milk. Back to Ron Swanson. Everyone's skim milk. Everyone's the same flavor. Everyone's just watery and weak and ugh. Everyone's pretending to be someone they're not. They're water pretending to be milk. Can't believe I just made that analogy talking about the Bushido code. But there we have it. That's my brain in a nutshell today. So no historian would argue that Hideyoshi personified the eight virtues of Bushido throughout his life. Like many great men, deep faults paralleled his towering gifts, like I talked about at the beginning with courage. Why do we strive to embody these virtues? Because we are deeply flawed and faulty individuals. 
And we recognize that about ourselves and we want to grow and become better and improve, but we don't have a roadmap. For me, this provides a roadmap. Very simply, the Bushido Code, the eight virtues of the samurai, they simply provide a roadmap for me to navigate through life. I have God's word in one hand and I have virtuous living in the other hand. And they inform each other. They just do. One's more heavily weighted than the other because I'm a man of faith, obviously. But my faith informs my view of reality. My faith informs my understanding of relationships. My faith informs why I want to be a good man and why I struggle with being a good man because I recognize all of my flaw, my flaws, my faults and my flaws. But it's because of those faults and flaws and attending to diminishing them and, and sanding them down and destroying and killing them that opens up opportunity for gifts to tower over my deep faults and flaws. So as deep and, and chasmic as my faults are, and they are, the gifts that tower above them are greater. And I think anyways, at least for myself and, and maybe for you, we get so caught up in focusing on our flaws and our faults and fixing them that we beat ourselves up unnecessarily because we're not changing according to some platonic ideal of what it means to deal with our faults. It doesn't mean getting rid of them. Just because you stop overeating and eating the wrong foods doesn't mean that when you walk by a bakery, you don't want to go right in there and buy three dozen donuts and just wolf them down right there while you're standing at the counter, as an example. <laughs> but it does mean that you recognize, I still got a sweet tooth and the temptation to walk in and, and, and eat that unhealthy food, it's still there, which means there's something in me that's unsatisfied, that seeks out that stuff that's not good for me, but yet to keep on walking that's the gift of self-control. To not stand in a group of people that are not good for me, that are destructive for me, that are not beneficial to me. To walk away from the group, that's a gift, the gift of courage. But I think, like I said, we get so caught up sometimes in pursuing improvement and growth and bettering ourselves that we actually blind ourselves to the gifts that we also bring to the table. And that for every fault that we can shave off another inch, that's another inch we add to our gifts. Every day where we focus on our flaws is a day that our gifts shine even brighter for others. So my advice anyways, because I'm guilty of this at least, is I get so locked into improving and being a better dad and a better husband and a better coach and a better everything that I just beat myself up constantly if I'm not careful because I've not lived up to my standard. But like he wrote here, right? Without, you set an absolute moral standard for yourself. That's of paramount, paramount importance is to set an absolute moral standard of right and wrong for yourself. It doesn't mean that we live up to it. We don't. But it means that we take it as a given that right is right and wrong is wrong. And that there's a time to fight and a time to surrender. There's a time to stand up for what's right and there's a time to retreat. There's a time to speak your mind and there's a time to be silent. This is all a matter of recognizing. There's a time to respect 
and then there's a time to react against disrespect, and that intellectual superiority is to be esteemed. It's important. That's why I do this podcast, to keep my, my mental faculties just as sharp as my physical faculties. But at the end of everything, we're still men and women of action. That's why I do this podcast. That's why I talk about what I talk about, and that's why you listen. So we model our behavior for others, and especially for the children, to teach them the same moral standards that are modeled on our own behavior, which is modeled on an absolute standard of right and wrong, good and evil, but also recognizing every single day that we live by that standard, our faults and our flaws are going to bubble up to the surface because we're applying pressure to them constantly. We're making ourselves uncomfortable by confronting our faults and our flaws. And we're doing it though, and this is why I say don't get so bogged down in addressing your faults and flaws that you become blind to your gifts. We're doing it so that our gifts can grow and shine. And that every one of us has gifts and abilities and skills that other people need. It's our faults and our flaws that get in the way. And so rather than allow our faults and our flaws to turn us into evil men and women, malignant, malicious people, we study the eight virtues of the samurai. And we go back to them and we reflect on how we've changed over the last two years, how our priorities have changed maybe, or how we've grown, or how we've struggled, and how we've gone through struggle, or how we've failed. And, And recognize, show mercy to yourself and show mercy to others. Because we're all struggling. And we all have faults and flaws that are deep chasms in who we are as people. But that... We can choose the high ground. We don't have to choose the valley. We don't have to choose to the lowest common denominator. We don't have to aspire downward. We can fail upward so long as we're constantly learning and applying what we've learned to our life. And that's why I think you can read these eight virtues circular. We start with rectitude or justice, and we end with knowing the difference between right and wrong. And that's all that justice is. So I'll wrap it up there. I, again, will include a link to this in the show notes so that you can print it off or upload it or do whatever you want with it when you need or want to. Otherwise, as always, I thank you greatly for everything that you do to support this show. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm really bad at beginning and ending these things. So as always, I'll just say, again, thanks, Space Monkeys. I'll talk to you again real soon. Peace.